today. Uh, my wife and I and kids went to see Overcomer yesterday. I don't know if you've uh, seen it or heard of it, but it's a very good movie. We really enjoyed it. Um, it's a movie about a coach who is teaching cross uh, country track for the first time. And uh, I could relate to that coach in many ways because he didn't like to run. He was not a very good runner. Um, he was a basketball coach, but running was just not his thing. And due to funding limitations, ends up having to coach a, a, a girl in track. And uh, running has just never been my thing. I saw Pastor Jimmy back there. He ran six miles yesterday. Is that right? Good job. I admire people that like to run. Um, I do not like to run. I, I get shin splint when I run. I um, just am not into it. I, I, my, my achievement today was walking the dog and 27-minute mile today. So that was, that was pretty good. Personal best. Um, but, um, but running is just not uh, my thing. In fact, I've even injured my finger running. So I, that's hard to do. But um, when I was a little kid, I was running home and I got my pinky stuck in my pocket as I was running and sprained my finger. And so running has just never been my thing. And I've, I've seen this shirt, uh, this little meme going around Facebook um, and it says, I wanted to go jogging, but Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked run when no one is chasing them. So there's that. <laughs> so uh, for people like me, that just gives me encouragement, maybe a biblical reason why I shouldn't run. Um, but um, there's actually a lot more to that proverb today. And we're going to be in Proverbs 28 today. So I thought I'd take some time to say what it really means. So those of you that do like to jog, run marathons, you're not sinning. You're not, um, God's not angry at you for running. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Proverbs 28 and focus on verse 1 and, and try to cover some of the rest of the passages. Um, to give you some context, he's actually, in Proverbs 28, there's a contrast between the wicked, uh, the rich, and the poor and the righteous. There's a combination of conversation about the wicked and the rich kind of are in one category of Proverbs 28, and the poor and the righteous are in another. So the first five verses, he's really focusing on how the wicked rule, although you'll see other verses that discuss this as well in that proverb. And then he describes the wicked rich people in 28, 6 through 11. And then he discusses the blessings and consequences for the wicked and the wise in 28, 12 to 28. Um, and so it begins with this verse that was on that t-shirt. It is a real verse in the Bible. It says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1 in the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, I'm a professor of biblical studies at the College of Biblical Studies, and so um, one of the things I teach is wisdom literature, and oftentimes within the Proverbs there are contrasts. It's what's called antithetic parallelism. It's just, it's just a big word for um, kind of like a compare and contrast paper, like what you had to write in elementary. They would just do that in one verse. And so here there's a contrast between the wicked who is running for fear of God's judgment and the righteous who are as confident and as bold as a lion. According to this verse, those who do not know Jesus as their personal Savior have an innate fear of God's judgment. 
They know that there's something wrong. They know that there is something um, there is something that is a higher power, whether they acknowledge that power or not, but there is an innate fear built into us of God's judgment. And in contrast to that, he says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, the good news today that I want to share with you is that through the gospel, we can become righteous. This is not uh, a righteousness that is earned or deserved or something that we do. As a result of Je Jesus' finished work on the cross, we become righteous. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, we all like sin have, 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 I'm sorry, not Romans 3. Uh, it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Jesus, uh, God the Father sent Jesus, his son, to die for our sins and to rise again to show his victory over death and his victory over sin, and that we can have eternal life by trusting in that finished work that Jesus did on the cross for everlasting life. And as a result of that, we get what's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Once again, sorry for a, a theology lesson today, but the imputed righteousness of Christ means that God's righteousness is put on our account. That, that regardless of the fact that we're morally bankrupt, that we're enemies of God, that, that the moment we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, He imputes His righteousness into us. And that from God's standing, that we, we have the righteousness of Christ, not something that we've done to earn or deserve it, but we have His righteousness. And so that's the good news of the gospel. And so one thing I want to share is, is if you feel like you're constantly running from God, you don't know where he is or, or, or you don't even know about him, today can be a day when you can be as bold as a lion. And in Revelation, Jesus Christ himself is, is portrayed as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We get this in Genesis as well. And so our boldness and our confidence does not come from anything we do or say. It comes from the lion of the tribe of Judah. It comes from the only righteous one, the only one upon whose righteousness we can trust. However, this message is not just for the people who have not trusted in Christ. This message is for us as Christians as well. The reality is, even if we are saved, sin often causes us to run and hide from God for fear of judgment. I don't know about you, but when I'm driving, um, and um, I unfortunately don't drive as slow as I, I should. My wife can certainly attest to that. Um, and I pass a police officer. There's often that innate fear that something's going to happen to me. Even if I'm like, even if I'm not speeding at that moment, because I know how many times I have speed, sped, you know, um, I look at my, oh good, I'm not speeding right now, or, you know, whatever. There's always that fear when I see that, that police car on, um, on the side of the road. And in some senses, it's almost as though God for us is that cosmic policeman that, that we recognize and we fear when we do something wrong. Okay, what's happening next? We all like our kids. We know when we make a mistake or mess up, you know, there's always that innate, innate fear of what's going to happen. And, and uh, this goes back to the garden. In Genesis 3, in the Garden, after Eden, uh, Garden of Eden, after sinning, Adam and Eve felt shame as their eyes were opened to their nakedness in Genesis 3.7. They were afraid of God, Genesis 3.10. They tried to cover themselves. They got fig leaves to cover themselves, and they fled from God and hid, Genesis 3.8. 
And what's interesting is while God is running to them, they were running from him. So here God is in the garden going, and they're hiding, and they're running. And this issue is resolved even back in Genesis, the first instance of sin. Even back in Genesis, this issue is resolved with that same gospel. That there is a promise in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman that will conquer Satan. And that God promises that Eve will have the seed of the woman. And, and so Adam names Eve the mother of all nations, symbolizing that he trusted in that Genesis 3.15 promise. Eve in Genesis 4.1 names her son Cain literally God-man-child, which meant that she also believed that Cain, mistakenly believed that he was that seed, but had faith that there was this seed coming that was going to overcome the serpent. So as soon as sin appears, the gospel appears, and I believe that we will see Adam and Eve in heaven because they trusted in him even in that moment going all the way back to Genesis 3. So this issue of our fear and worry about judgment, the, the perfect love casts out fear, all fear really is dealing with when we love perfectly, we have no reason to fear. When we love God and others, that that gives us, that, that relieves us of that fear. So today, I would say that even what happened in the garden happens to us today. That when we sin, which I would call lack of love for God and others, guilt is the first result that then re results in apparently uncaused fear, and then that results in apparently uncaused fleeing. This is not my idea. This is Rich Thompson's book at the College of Biblical Studies. We teach a biblical counseling class, and it's based on this book called The Heart of Man and the Mental Disorders. It's a huge book, and it's a biblical counseling book that lays out this framework for what happens in our immaterial heart. Guilt can take the form of being down on oneself or lacking confidence. Apparently, uncaused fear can be anxieties or phobias. Um, that what can often happen is as we feel guilty, it can affect our confidence. And that's, we saw that in this very verse. He says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. That our, our confidence is often directly attached to our lifestyle and what we're doing. Sometimes the thing we feel guilty about and afraid of is not our real problem. When God approaches Adam and Eve and says, um, why have you, why did you hide? He says, well, we were naked and we hid from you. We were afraid of you because we were naked. His nakedness was not his problem. His problem was his sin. His sin made him aware of his nakedness, but the issue, the core issue that Adam was really dealing with was his sin. He was running from God because of his sin, not because of his nakedness. But in his own mind, he attributed the issue to his nakedness when it really was his sin. And he tried to resolve that issue by covering himself with fig leaves. In fact, some people argue that perhaps the fruit that they actually ate of in the garden was a fig. Um, and they took the leaves from the fruit and tried to cover themselves. Um, and so the thing that was his central problem was not the thing that he acknowledged as, as his problem. And sometimes we too can do the same thing. You're going to find out that I'm very messed up. Um, am messed up, was messed up, you know, but um, in, in eighth grade, I know it doesn't appear uh, this now, I used to be anorexic. Um, my father um, got promoted when I was in junior high, and um, he just didn't have as much time for us. 
And in my heart, there was a great deal of resentment that started building up towards my father. He wasn't at my games. He wasn't home, you know. And then my poor mom is trying to figure out how to raise, you know, a, a soon-to-be teenage son. And, um, and so I just had all this anger and bitterness towards my father. How it manifested itself, though, was I was afraid to eat. I had a fear of throwing up. I had this constant fear of throwing up. And, um, and so literally, you know, you think of most eighth grade boys, most eighth grade boys will eat a house. I literally, when we would go out, I'd eat one piece of pizza because I was afraid of eating more because I was uh, literally petrified that I would throw up. The issue that was going on in my heart was not food. Even though it was manifested in food, the issue was my anger towards my father. That was my real problem. That was my real issue at that time. And now, in hindsight, I can look back and say that that was what was going on. But at the time, my fear, I thought my biggest problem was food. And what ended up happening was I went to a doctor. I went to all these doctors. They did all this test, these tests. They thought maybe I had a parasite or something, and everything showed out completely normal. And one doctor looked at me, and he said, I think you have anorexia. I think you're afraid of eating. He said, um, if you don't start gaining weight, I was 86 pounds as a freshman in high school, 86 pounds. Um, if you don't start gaining weight, we're going to have to feed you intravenously. And my fear of needles was bigger than my fear of food. <laughs> so I started eating. But what happened was I gave up my anorexia and then started trading it for other things. I started getting into pornography around that time. I started getting into a lot of other things. Um, and so all I did was I traded my anorexia for pornography. I traded one bondage to another bondage. I had a friend of mine, a single friend, we went out to eat one time and he was telling me, he's like, you know, and I was really kind of wrestling with this. I was learning about, you know, um, this and he was sharing with me, we, we, we were in a, a, a small group and he was sharing with me, he said, you know, he said, I just don't feel comfortable here. You know, he said, you know, uh, people have more money than me. People are, are they just seem so self-righteous. I don't feel comfortable here. And um, he said, I just don't feel like I belong at this church. And I remember just, talking through that, and my initial inclination was to go to Galatians and talk to him about he's free and, and where his identity is in Christ and all this stuff. And it occurred to me, based on this verse, I just asked him a question. I said, is there some sin you're struggling with that you have not told me about? And um, he looked at me quietly, and then I said, is there something you're struggling with that you have not told me about? And he shared with me, he said, well, the reality is I've been really struggling with pornography. And um, I, I just can't, you know, um, stop it. I just, you know, I, I, I'm a new Christian. I've been trying. I've been really struggling with this. I said, let's go to your house. And I basically put filtering software on his computer. I, I kept the password for the filtering software. And I said, let's just, let's address this issue. See, he thought his issue was he wasn't rich enough or he wasn't cool enough or he wasn't good enough. The real issue was something else that was going on in his heart. And he thought he, what he was doing is he was running from God's people and running from God's word because he was, he was convicted over things that, was go, that were going on in his heart when he was around us. I want to clarify a few things, though, um, as I say this, because I want to be extremely cautious. What I'm not saying here is that it's evil or wrong for a Christian to take medication for a psychological issue. I'm not saying that... Um, 
that it is wrong for a, a Christian to pursue help for any issue. I'm also not saying that all fear uh, are evil and a result of sin. Jesus himself was distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He literally had sweat that seemed like blood. Now, we don't know exactly if he actually was sweating blood. The text says it was sweat seemed like drops of blood. We don't know if he was sweating blood or if it was the thickness of his sweat, but, but the reality is there are times when we will be distressed. We will be overwhelmed, and that's not inherently sinful. Jesus at the garden, as, he, as he's looking about at, the, at our sins being put on him um, and, and the resulting wrath of God that was going to come upon him, he felt distressed. If my kids were to be kidnapped or taken away from me today, I would feel distressed. Uh, I wouldn't be calm about it. I wouldn't be happy about it. I wouldn't be... So what I do want to point out is not every example of, of fear or of, um, of, of, of concern is sinful. I'm not saying that if someone loved God and others more, they would always have perfect peace. I'm not saying that if you don't have peace, this is always a problem of a lack of love for God and others. Um, there are times when we're not going to have peace. I, I, don't, I, don't, I think Jesus was at peace, but my, maybe didn't have peace at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I'm not saying that, you know, all you have to do is trust Jesus more or believe Jesus more and you'll have peace. I'm not saying that illness of any kind, whether mental or physical, is a sign of lack of faith or sin. That's not what I'm saying. So what am I saying? I'm saying there's freedom and hope in God's word that can help us to address the worries, anxieties, and addictive behaviors we or those whom we love experience. I'm saying there is hope in God's word. I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm not here to, to tell anyone, you know, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going to get help for um, is a sign that there's something wrong with you. What I am saying is there is freedom in God's word. There is hope in God's word for the things we wrestle with, the things we worry about, the things we fear, the, the things we're concerned about. And as I said, you, and you'll see, I, I'm still messed up. I still have my issues. Uh, David Ferguson, in his book, The Never Alone Church, describes a situation where he was brought a man to, to counsel that was abusive, physically abusive to his wife. And this guy was huge. He said this guy was like six something, you know, big guy, strong guy, you know, and had an awful temper. And his wife drug him to counseling. And David literally was fearful for his safety. The man was getting angry and blowing up in the counseling sessions. And he was literally fearful for his safety. And uh, obviously fearful for his wife's safety. And as he's counseling this guy, and as he's trying to get to the root, as this guy is just pouring out all this anger against his wife, and even him as the counselor, David stopped and looked at him and said, who hurt you? The guy starts yelling. He gets more, more and more angry. David calmly said, who hurt you? The guy then gets up and gets in his face, and he's you know, almost going to physically hit him. And David calmly says, who hurt you? And the guy, all of a sudden, for the first time his wife sees this, just starts breaking down crying. And she's shocked, and, and David's looking, and he whispers the question again, who hurt you? And the guy had told a story of a time when he was young. He was a little boy, and his parents, like many of us, had a rule that they had to be home, you know, before dark. 
And he had gone out and he had had some fun with his friends and he was running late. And he was fearful that he wouldn't get home before dark. And in his house, if he didn't get home before dark, that he'd get spanked or he'd get disciplined. Well, he knew that he was not going to get home the way he normally went. And so he figured out that he could cut through a forest that he wasn't supposed to go through to get home. And as he was cutting through the forest, he ran into a man who abused him and took advantage of him. And he escaped from the man and got home, and his parents were furious, and they disciplined him for, um, for being late. And this man had held this secret for years and years, never even told his wife about this incident. And there he is sitting in the counselor's office, and David says, who hurt you? Who hurt you? And all these years of his anger, his outbursts, all this stuff was really directed at a situation that had happened to his childhood that he never dealt with. David says that from that day on through more intensive counseling that he was a completely changed man. This man that was angry, this man that was bitter, this man that was, ended up being a great husband, ended up reconciling with his wife, ended up being a transformed man. So what I am saying today is there is hope for us even in our mess. But sometimes that hope means that we have to face certain things that we bury deep inside of us. In that same book, David says that if we want healing from these things, we need to face our pain, mourn our loss, and receive comfort. We have to go back to that day and face that pain. Face the pain of whatever it was. And, and like I said, as I've cataloged all of my issues, and I still have plenty more, Susan will be the first to tell you, I've gone back and looked at, okay, what, what, what was it in that little boy's heart at the, in the eighth grade that was mad at his dad? When did all these things start? Have I truly forgiven my father? Have I truly reconciled? Have, have I learned to accept what God allowed in my life? And this is, for many of you, this is a small problem compared to what many, I'm not trying to oversimplify. I'm just saying what happened in my own messed up heart that for some of us, we have to go back to those things, face that pain, mourn that loss, and then allow the body of Christ to comfort us, to, to address that, to help us to see that. Um, and so, well, Proverbs 20, it says, when we run from God, fleeing, we usually are running to something to cope with the immaterial effects of sin. We can flee, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. That's that kind of anxiety we feel that no one is no one's after us yet but then in response to that fear like Adam we're going to hide we're going to run to something and that something can sometimes be unhealthy compulsive behaviors like drugs or pornography or we can even flee to healthy things like exercise and cleaning now I do want to say I don't want husbands to come home and say, he said, you know, I don't have to clean. I'm, I'm fleeing from cleaning. I'm not saying that either. Um, God is a perfectionist. God's standard is perfection. The issue is, how do we respond when we don't get perfection? It's okay to desire a perfect house. It's okay to desire cleanliness. But how do we respond? God, when he is faced with imperfection, still can love the person in spite of their imperfection. He can still show grace in spite of imperfection. So being a perfectionist is not in and of itself a problem, but it is 
um, the issue is is our when faced with imperfection is our response to sin or is our response to love we have a choice as to how we respond to imperfection so let's catalog my messed up messed up life again so by sophomore year junior year in high school i had um I was no longer looking at pornography extensively. Um, you know, I, I can't remember if I did or not, but I don't, I don't remember it being the issue that it was uh, in the eighth and ninth grade. Um, but then what I ran to was girls. Um, I had a girlfriend I fell in love with my junior year in high school and thought she was the one I was going to marry. And then right before my senior year, it just went bad and then fell for another girl that just looked just like her. Um, and um, I really liked her, but she wasn't interested in me. And... Um, and so um, she wasn't really interested in me, but she um, didn't have a prom date, so she kind of convinced me to ask her to prom. And I thought, oh, well, this means she's interested in me. And she really wasn't, but she really wanted to go to prom. And so I, I took her out to prom and then, you know, then found out that same week of prom that she was interested in another guy and very upset. And so that whole summer, um, I was angry. My anger had shifted from her, from my, from my dad to her. And so for that summer, every night before I went to bed out of anger, I put her picture on the floor and I did a thousand push-ups putting my nose against her face. Four sets of 250 push-ups. Um, and so what had happened is the way I was running now was exercise. Not running, I wasn't running, still wasn't running, um, but I was doing exercise. That's the way I was wrestling through. That's the way I was, I still have, pain from this day. When I do too many push-ups, it hurts because I think I had, you know, I was doing these every night. No rest, no, you know, um, I was just so angry that I needed an outlet. And in my mind, this was a healthier outlet, but the reality is I still was fleeing. I had just traded not so good things like anorexia and, um, and, and pornography for exercise. And so the reality is, is oftentimes we're, um, trying to escape God and the, feel, the, the, the experiences we have in our heart. And so what I would say is if we find ourselves struggling with a compulsive behavior, ask ourselves when it started and see if there's an incident that we need to bring to God to confession. Whatever this compulsive behavior it is that we're struggling with, it could be compulsive exercise. And once again, I'm not saying all, once again, not all forms of exercise still go to the gym. I still exercise. I, I know it doesn't look like it, but I do go to the, I do exercise a few days a week. Um, but not everything, but the issue is the addictive nature of it. The, whenever we're stressed, what is it we want to do? Could be watch a sports team. Could be, instead of bringing those stresses to God, oftentimes we're looking for some form of escape. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, when did this start? What happened? And as I've been studying this, this is what brought me back to, okay, when did my struggles with pornography start? Well, that started in the eighth grade. What happened with, with my, as I was analyzing these things, it just caused me to do an inventory of my life and in my mind. Now, I do want you to do something real quick. I do want you to turn to your spouse or to your children and tell them, this is about me. Can you look to your spouse and children and say, this is about me? Because another form of fleeing is to say, wow, my spouse really needs to hear this. They have an anger problem. Or my kids need to hear this. They have this. One of the interesting things is more than likely the kid that gets on your nerves is the one that's most like you. 
oftentimes we just try to discipline the us out of our kids. And so the things we're not dealing with on our own heart, we get extra hard on our kids about, and we try to discipline the us out of our kids. And so what happens is, is oftentimes that's another way of, of running or fleeing from what God's trying to do in our own heart. When, when we see this in our kids, it should horrify us, horrify us to say, God, please help me. When I see my own son getting as angry as I get, I should be saying, God, help me. Instead, I get angry at him for getting angry right? Now, once again, it's not wrong to discipline your kids. It's not wrong to wrestle with sin, but what, what it is, what we do need to do is we need to make sure we're checking our own heart before we check out every other's heart. Now, there's another form of fleeing I want to comment on. Some of y'all are fleeing to other sports teams. When you have perfectly good sports teams in Houston here, <laughs> posting about winning a preseason football game like you won the Super Bowl, give me a break. Thinking everybody in Houston has irrational Dallas hate. We all hate you. We're all just kidding. Those of you that are guests, our pastor's a big Dallas fan, so I hear his sports jokes every, so every time I speak, I try to insert a Houston joke just to kind of keep everything even. So how do we address this? How do we address this issue? First of all, we need to confess to God and others whom we've wronged as our primary way to address this. The first thing we need to do really is I think we need to face our pain, mourn our loss, receive comfort. But where we see that perhaps there are issues, in my heart I learned I had to figure out how can I, how can I forgive my father? I had to sit down with him. Now once again, I, you know, I see, now, I, now that I'm an adult, I see the own struggles. I see myself calling my wife at 7.30 saying I can't get home yet, missing dinners, mi missing things that are important to my kids. And now, it's, as my kids are getting into junior high, I can see some of the things he was struggling with that caused me so much anger. Now that I see the other side of it, I kind of understand him better. And so some of that meant that I just had to sit down with him and just say, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I was so angry with you. I'm sorry that I didn't understand everything that you were facing. Some of that means that we have to, to go to God and bring that. Maybe that person is long gone or out of our lives, and we can't do that. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. According to James 1, 13 through 15, when we sin, our mind blames God for the temptation. He says, Let no one say when you are tempted that you are being tempted by God. In our mind, we think, God, you put me in a situation where the best thing I can do is sin. Our emotions are drawn to the sin, James 1, uh, 14, and with our will, we plan to get the benefits of the sin without the consequences. Genesis 1.15. What confession does is it realigns our mind, emotions, and will back to God. The purpose of, so with confession, with, with sin, my mind blames God for the sin. My emotions are drawn to the sin. And my will um, is planning how can I get the benefits of the sin without the consequences. And so what confession does is it recalibrates our heart back to a, a God-centered mind, emotions, and will. Rich Thompson says that this is uh, three elements of a biblical confess, uh, confession. First of all, confess and repent of sin. 1 John 1, 9, Proverbs 28, 13. So to confess and repent and to say, God, God, help me. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I repent of it. I turn away from it. But there's three more steps that we often forget. Second, count on God's forgiveness. 
believe and own that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that he has forgiven you. Count on it. Believe it. Accept it. Receive it. So often we kind of confess it and then we say, there's no way God can forgive me. Or even in our mind, we mentally think, but we live as though God has not forgiven us of that thing. Believe it. Willingly submit to the control of the Holy Spirit. Say, God, I'm willing to let your spirit control me in this area. I see this issue in my life. And count on or believe in God's ability to control you. Believe that the Holy Spirit, God, I I have faith that you can overcome this area. You can help me in this area. You can, and so this is the process we should undertake anytime we find ourselves in sin. Not just the big ones, but the small ones. That, that we should be walking through that process just to make sure that our mind, emotions, and will are realigned to God. Not for getting to heaven or not getting to heaven. This is for fellowship, for a good relationship with God. Because as we confess and forsake our sins, we will find compassion, this proverb says in verse 13. So what are the results of this confession Proverbs 28, 1b says, But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Boldness speaks of a confidence in God that affects our perceptions of ourselves. Oftentimes when we find ourselves struggling with confidence, it may be something that, um, once again, we might be misdiagnosing what we're struggling with. We might not be recognizing. And so boldness is a, is, is a confidence that affects our perceptions of ourselves and allows us to view ourselves as God sees us. In his book, The Heart of Man and the Mental Disorders, Rich Thompson argues that love for God and others results in peace. Uh, Galatians 5.22, Philippians 4.7-9, Isaiah 26.3, uh, confidence, 1 John 4.17-18, 1 John 3.21 and Proverbs 21, and drawing near to God and others, 1 Peter 2.4 and Hebrews 4.16. And so um, this is basically a counseling model that we teach at the College of Biblical Studies to help people through, kind of wrestling through some of these. And it's based largely on this Proverbs, Proverbs 21. Well, I know some of y'all are checking your clock saying, wow, he spent a lot of time on the first verse. How much more time are we going to spend? Well, I'm just going to basically go over what's in the rest of the proverb. Um, I want to talk about the characteristics of wicked rulers or regimes. And unfortunately, I don't have time to go verse by verse through this passage, um, but I want to walk through what this proverb says of it. It says that, and and incidentally, I just want to point out, I'm not speaking of any contemporary rulers, whether that be President Trump, President Obama, whoever it is, don't, I don't, I don't, this is not a political sermon. This is simply saying, what does the the text say about wicked rulers and regimes? One, uh, the signs that Proverbs says is there's frequent turnover in leadership, verse 2. Oppression of the poor, verses 3 and 15. Praise for the wicked, verse 4. A lack of comprehension of justice, verse 5. That ruler is often a companion of gluttons, and he humiliates his own father, verse 7. They lead the upright astray and fall into their own pit, verse 10. Men hide from wicked rulers, verses 12 and 28. There's a lack of understanding, verse 16. They're constantly on the run. They're fugitive until death, verse 17. Their sudden fall or collapse, verse 18. And there's robbing of their parents with no guilt, verse 24. Then he describes what are the characteristics of unrighteous wealth. He says that uh, people that not all wealthy people are are evil or or wrong, but 
unrighteous people who depend on wealth. They're often crooked and lacking integrity, verse 6. They overcharge the poor, which will lead to a loss of income to those who are gracious to the poor. So it basically describes how the, the funds of the wicked, those who, who overcharge, are stored up for the righteous who, who care for the poor. The rich are wise in their own eyes, and they're subject to punishment, verses 11 and 20. Their empty pursuits may lead to a loss of wealth, verses 19 and 22. Curses for ignoring the poor, verse 27. Then he goes into some of the characteristics and blessings for the wise and the generous. The wise and the generous are bold. They have confidence, which we already talked about, verse 1. Enduring leadership, verse 2. They strive against evil, verse 4. They understand justice, verse 5. They have integrity, verse 6. They have discernment and understanding, verses 7 and 11. They have financial blessing from the wicked, verse 8. They have a good inheritance, verse 10. And they have blessing, verses 14 and 20. He also tells them they have length of days, verse 16. Deliverance, verses 18 and 26. Reward, food for hard work, verse 19. Favor, verse 23. Prosperity, 25. And generosity to the poor will result in needs being met, verse 27. What I want to point out about all this is this kind of inverts a lot of our American understanding of justice, injustice, and the poor. A lot of times in our American capitalistic society, we think all poor are lazy and all rich are hardworking. Um, and I think what this Proverbs is saying is it's not all, but that there are some times that wealthy people, either through inheritance or unrighteous means, receive money, and there are poor people who in the heart of God should be praised for their diligence, their work, and their effort. It also describes the fact that if we are wise, that we would be people who understand justice, that we need to understand what the Bible says about justice. We need to understand what it says about those things and to, to live in light of that justice. Um, once again, I think sometimes in our American society, we don't understand or we don't think about justice in the way the Bible describes justice. We don't cry out for justice in the way we, we, we rejoice in our own comfort more than we care for others who are suffering um, injustice. Um, I read an article yesterday from a friend of mine um, who adopted two African-American children. She's a white woman and she was describing the difference that her kids face, uh, her African-American kids versus her white children. You know, the times when she's taking them trick-or-treating and, and, you know, they, they ask the African-American kids, where are your parents? And they don't ask the two white kids. The times when they've been followed around, all these things. And I just think sometimes we just need to listen and care. So what did we talk about today? We talked about wicked rulers. We talked about wicked rich people. We talked about blessings and consequences um, for the rich. I want to close with an illustration. And... Um, I want to talk a little bit about this kind of bending upside down of justice. There was an article that I, or a, a blog I recently saw spread around from some friends, none of which are here that I'm aware of. So if, if you happen to share this, I'm not criticizing you. These were some friends that do not attend this church. Um, but it was interest, an interesting conversation, and in light of Proverbs 28, it gave me something to think about. Um, I want to say that I'm not criticizing anything, uh, anyone personally, I just want us to think about, look at things through a biblical lens. Because sometimes we share things on Facebook, we share things in, 
and describe it, we don't always get the whole picture that the Bible shares. And so the article was called Nine Things Jesus Might Do About Immigration. Now I want to come out and say, once again, I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to be divisive. I'm just trying to say, can we look at things from a biblical lens? We just saw a whole conversation about justice and poor and rich and all these things. And I think sometimes we might not represent all that the Bible has to say about these topics. I attend, I teach at a school that's 50% African American, 30% Hispanic, um, 18% Anglo, and 2% um, Asian. One of the things that's been really great for me is to get to interact. And one of the things that uh, an African American professor said, Nick Ellen, he said, oftentimes, he said, the minority culture oftentimes will put their culture against the Bible while the majority, culture over the Bible, while the majority culture portrays their views as the Bible. And he said, those are two extremes that we need to avoid. There are extremes on all sides of this, and I just want to point that out. I'm not here to, but I do think sometimes we've got to look at everything through that lens. So this was the article, and I just want to give you my perspective on it. First, I want to say there's a lot of good in this. Um, I believe Romans 13 um, argues that we should um, obey laws, whether we're in this country or not, whether this is our country, that we have to obey the laws and the governing authorities. I believe that the Bible teaches us that we um, should um, be leaders in our own country and do all these things. However, I think that the full picture was not, and so I'm just going to give you my theology professor uh, assessment as an illustration of how I think sometimes we don't always look at the full picture. Nine things Jesus might do about immigration. Number one, stand and lead. Jesus wouldn't teach people to run from their homelands. He would empower them to stand their ground, to lead, and to overcome challenges with creative love. Well, one challenge with this is God commanded Jesus' parents to leave uh, for Egypt um, when a wicked ruler was about to kill him. So I think we need to be careful, I think, to portray Jesus um, as always doing that when God, his father, commanded his own parents to do that clean up crime because he loves people Jesus would oppose the crime and corruption that harms them he would clean the temple and heal cities and nations so people would be free to stay at home he surely wouldn't empty whole towns of dads and leave their children's fatherless first of all I completely agree that we have to prioritize our children prioritize our family what is somewhat interesting is there's no mention here of the crime of employing illegal aliens that we have entire industries, we have entire, um, we have entire businesses that could not thrive without this cheap labor. And yet we rarely speak about that. Um, the construction business, the, um, uh, you know, agriculture, it would be very hard for either of those to survive without this labor. So if we're going to call out breaking law, we need to call it out on both sides. Number three, affirm compassion, fairness. Jesus would likely allow America as being generous nation on earth, welcoming a million illegal immigrants per year, but many applying legally are left outside waiting because of illegal entries and seeking asylum claims. Letting those who broke the rules leapfrog over them is simply and frankly unjust. Once again, my question is, we just saw a proverb that talked about the heart for the poor. Talked about what, do, what heart do rich people or what heart should we have in so yes, I do think it's unjust for people to do things illegally, but if we're going to have entire industries that are built on this labor, how can we address that biblically? Number four, take the whole counsel of Scripture. Jesus would not cherry-pick 
Bible verses as the Pharisees did. He would reason from the whole counsel of Scripture, which is the highest love for human beings and the highest good for cultures. And the Bible does not teach open borders, but wise welcome. I completely agree that the Bible does not teach open borders. It does teach wise welcome. However, I would say there are a lot of other verses that we need to look at for God's heart for the alien um, that we need to incorporate into this process. See, through dirty politics, we know that Jesus saw through the wiles of Pilate and Herod, surely he wouldn't play the game of progressive social engineers who use the poorest pawns. Since Jesus knew all, he would have realized this. If the thousands in today's caravans were likely Republican voters, the left's well-funded machine would not be welcoming to them in America. Well, I would say there's dirty politics on both sides of this equation. I would say that um, portraying uh, all aliens as rapists or as all bad is just as dirty as the opposite. And I will tell you, I mean, I'm a conservative person. I generally support conservative candidates. But I think we have to look at this. And my concern about this is not what it says about illegal aliens, but what it says about Jesus. You may not agree with me at the end of the day, but I just want to make sure when we're evaluating things, when we're looking at things, that we're looking at the heart of Jesus himself. Number six, he would call out the Pharisees. Woe to us when ministers bring harm to a nation by advancing a political majority, pushing infanticide, lawlessness, and socialist economic system built on envy and covetousness. Beware of wolves in, shepherd, in shepherd's clothing. I would say be careful about our own witness. I would say the Christian church has done more in America to damage its witness by standing on the wrong side of some issues over history. I had a friend, a, a former co-worker of mine at the College of Biblical Studies that um, has embraced a view that is different um, on the issue of sexuality than what I believe the Bible presents. And when I asked her, I said, how can you hold this view? She said, You, you, you all, you conservatives, use the Bible to justify slavery. You use the Bible to justify segregation. You use the Bible to not allow women to vote. What makes you think you're right now? And I think it's sad that a history of doing these things has resulted in us losing our influ influence on this society. Number seven, run to Caesar. Jesus didn't urge his disciples to break the law. He told them to pay for taxes even to the occupying Roman government. If Jews were to honor Roman laws, they had no part in making. How can Jews, how can Christians today urge to break it our own democratically enacted laws? Well, I address that. I would say we need to look at both sides of this issue. If we're going to focus on one side of breaking laws, then we have to focus on the industries and the companies that hire that type of work. Eight, tell, our, tell us to love our actual neighbors. After students volunteer with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, she would send them home to love their families. Love begins at home, she famously taught. Until the economic recovery, 90 million Americans were not working, while millions of foreign persons were welcomed to America, and many took jobs for lower wages. Shrugging at this was not a way of loving our neighbors. James 5.4 describes oppressive wages. It describes um, that the Lord of Sabbath will judge those who oppressively hire people and don't pay them. Um, and so we have entire... Um, industries that are based on that preach to all nations biblical wisdom is the highest love for human beings we're called to wisely steward in the garden of culture let's honor both neighbors and those who come lawfully as blessings and let's continue the long christian history of generous faith overcoming evil with good so that we might be a light to all nations i would say on this and once again i'm not 
four open borders. I think, if anything, I think um, a guest worker program like what George W. Bush proposed several years ago could address the issue of the need for labor as well as uh, Romans 13. But one thing we as a church have to realize is the world is coming to us. I met my wife at a Glendale missions project where we were doing ministry where the INS puts brand new refugees. We had Afghanistani widows. We had Laotians. We had people from all the, the world is in our back door. May we see that world as an opportunity to share that great gospel God has given us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I'm sure through some of this, I've probably offended some people. I've probably hurt some people. I've probably said things and where I've not been gracious. I pray, God, that you would help us. But ha help us to have a biblical view of justice. Help us to have a biblical view. Let's have the courage, Lord, to see things as you see them. And God, I'll be the first to admit, I don't always see things right. And I could be completely wrong about all of this. But I, what I would say, Lord, is my desire is for us as a church to love those you love, to compa have compassion on those you have compassion for. I'm going to ask every one of you there as you're seated, if there's an issue that you just need God's healing for. We talked a lot about that. We discussed this issue. I just want to invite you to pray now, to walk through those steps of confession we talked about. Think about those people that hurt you or that you struggle with and face your pain, mourn your loss, receive comfort, and cry out to God for forgiveness and to seek that peace that surpasses all understanding that God provides for you. Father, we love you, we praise you, we trust you. We entrust this time to you and pray, God, that you will be glorified in it. We love you and praise you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.